Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the siege of Kerzon, part four of five. On June the 18th, in the year 860, just as the sun was setting, a flotilla of 200 Viking warships made a sudden appearance outside the walls of Constantinople, capital of the Byzantine Empire. Having sailed south from their northern homeland via the Dnieper and the Black Sea, the invaders entered the Bosporus and attacked the suburbs outside the city walls. After setting fire to many homes and murdering their residents, the Vikings moved on to the Isles of the Princes, where they plundered the houses and monasteries. They slaughtered anyone who stood in their way, cutting them into pieces with their axes. The tremendous shock of the event is described by the patriarch Phaetios, and is sometimes compared to the Viking attack on the monastery of Lindisfarne, England in 793. The Vikings chose the timing of their attack well. Emperor Michael III and the main Byzantine army were away in Anatolia trying to reclaim lands lost to the Arabs, and so the city was poorly defended. Fortunately for the Byzantines, the city walls were too well fortified for the attackers to even consider a siege. Instead they withdrew, just as quickly as they had arrived. Later sources attribute their retreat to the Emperor's speedy return to the capital. As the story goes, after Michael and Photius put the sacred veil of the Theotokos into the sea, a great wind immediately rose up and wrecked the Rus ships. Historians are, however, rather sceptical of this, and other later embellishments around the story. The attack is also described in the Primary Chronicle, our principal source for the history of Kievan Rus, although many of its details are thought to be incorrect. Its chronology of events, such as the setting of the attack on Constantinople in 866, is discredited in favour of that of Byzantine sources. While according to the Primary Chronicle, the perpetrators were two brothers from Kiev by the name of Askold and Dia, Many historians doubt that the attack originated from Kiev. In fact, it is not even known for sure if such two individuals ever existed. One school of thought is that Askold and Deer were actually one and the same person. At the time of the attack, there were a number of settlements on a network of rivers between the Baltic and the Black and Caspian Seas, established by Viking invaders who became known as the Vringians or as the Rus. The lakeside towns of Staria Ladoga and Gorodish, for example, were at the time substantially larger than Kiev, and are equally likely candidates for the origin of the attack on Constantinople. One firm fact is that the Byzantines had already been in contact with the Vringians since at least the year 838. 
In this year, it is known that representatives of the Rus accompanied a Byzantine embassy to the court of Louis the Pious, King of the Franks. The Franks were at the time frequent victims of Viking raids. From the late 850s, however, they became better organised and more able to defend themselves. It can therefore be no coincidence that from the 860s they witnessed an upsurge of Viking attacks elsewhere around Europe, as the Norsemen sought easier pickings in other places. The British Isles bore the main brunt of the attacks, but sizeable raiding parties sailed as far as southern and eastern Spain, and Arab sources suggest at a similar time Viking attacks reached even as far as the Caspian Sea, although the attackers in this case were defeated and slain by the local Muslims. This period also witnessed violence and upheaval in a newly established Varangian settlements in Russia, judging by archaeological excavations. Between the years 863 and 871, a massive fire destroyed the entire settlement at Staraya Ladoga. There was also evidence of devastating fires around this time in other settlements in the region, including in the fortified settlement of Gorodish. The historian Jonathan Shepard suggests the beginnings of a stronger political order, and with it economic revival after this period of instability. One piece of evidence for this is the construction at Staria Ladoga of what was apparently a citadel, surrounded by limestone slabs, and later a great hall was built, partly from dismantled ship's timbers, which could well have been where a prince or local governor lived. This is around the starting time of the Rurik dynasty described in the Primary Chronicle. According to the chronicler's authors, the native Slavs and Finns agreed jointly to call in a ruler from overseas. The response in the form of the arrival of three princely brothers is dated to around 862. The younger brothers soon died, and the survivor, Rurik, joined their possessions to his own and assigned his men to the various towns. Before long, a move was made southwards to the middle Dnieper River by non-princely Varingians, Askold and Deer. They are said to have come upon a small town called Kiev, which at the time was paying tribute to the Khazars, and they took charge of it. The location of Kiev was ideal for settlement, on fertile ground and surrounded by pine-wooded heights, which provided both game in abundance and a form of natural security. There was no other such cluster of hills anywhere else around the middle Dnieper. It was also a convenient point for crossing the river, emphasised by the tradition that the town's founder and namesake, named Key, was a ferryman. Around 882, Eskold were replaced by a certain Oleg, not apparently a prince himself, but acting on behalf of Rurik's infant son, Igor. Oleg brought forth the child with the words, Behold the son of Rurik, and Eskold and Deer were put to death. With Oleg, who reigned 872 to 912, we have the first known definite historical figure. Credited with building the foundations of a Kievan state, his reign begins an era of growth and expansion of the Kievan realm that was to last approximately a century. Oleg's main challenge was to acquire control of the disparate Slavic and Finnish tribes who lived along trade routes he hoped to control. Also important was to be able to defend his interests against attacks on the Pechenegs. 
the 10th century Emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitus, who reigned 913 to 959, described how the Rus were particularly vulnerable to attack at the Dnieper Rapids, which they had to bypass on foot. The Rus, he advises future leaders, are unable to reach Constantinople either for war or trade, unless they are at peace with the Petronegs, or else they can easily be attacked while carrying their boats across land. Clearly, a strong military leader, Oleg had, through the 880s and 890s, brought various local groups under his hegemony, and by the beginning of the 10th century, had extended his authority all the way from the upper Volga and the Gulf of Finland, in the north, down to the Black Sea coast, and the Dnieper Delta in the south. Such rapid expansion naturally brought him into potential conflict with the two strongest powers in the region, Byzantium and the Khazars. Having been shaken by internal upheavals and attacks from Magyars and Impechenegs, the Khazars were in no position to seriously challenge the loss of their Slavic vassals to the Varingian Rus. Oleg's relations with the Byzantine Empire were more complex, because the wealth of Kievan Rus depended on favourable trade agreements with Constantinople. The form of diplomacy assumed by Oleg was a mixture of negotiation and intimidation. In 907, he led an attack on Constantinople, which forced the Greeks to sign a treaty that exempted the Rus traders from customs duties and provided them with free lodging in the imperial city during the trading missions. Kiev benefited greatly from such preferential trading rights in their commerce with Byzantium. The Rus, by no means, had everything their own way. They only dared attack Constantinople when the empire's main armies were busy elsewhere and they were not above being manipulated by the Greeks to some extent. In a letter from a Byzantine patriarch of the time, the Greeks threatened to unleash a Rus invasion of Bulgaria, from which historians infer that they were able to manipulate the Rus for their own political ends, using their common trick of paying one tribe to attack another. Despite the current military conflicts though, the relations between the Rus and Byzantium seem to have been mainly peaceful, not surprising given the importance of trade between their peoples. The chronology of the events of Oleg's time is debated, with different sources contradicting each other. Assuming the accuracy of the primary chronicle, Oleg passed away in 912 and was succeeded by his son Igor, who had by then come of age. Kievan Rus continued to prosper during his reign, although the Petronegs became more of a problem and undertook at least two major attacks. Relations with Byzantium also deteriorated, and in 941 Igor decided to make another raid on the imperial capital. This time the Rus were defeated, and although a new commercial treaty was signed in 944, it gave Kiev much less favourable terms. Among the subjected Slavic tribes, meanwhile, there was growing resentment about the level of tribute demanded by the Varangian elite to fund their opulent lifestyle. Igor was killed while collecting Jews from a tribe called the Drevlians in 945. The primary chronicle blames his death on his excessive greed, saying that he tried to collect tribute for a second time in a month. Igor was succeeded by his wife Olga, who acted as regent for their young son Svetoslav. Her first act was to avenge the death of her husband by punishing the Drevlians. 
According to the primary chronicle, she invited them to a funeral feast so she could mourn over her husband's grave. After the Drevlians were drunk, Olga's soldiers killed over 5,000 of them. She then returned to Kiev and prepared an army to attack the survivors. The Drevlians begged for mercy and offered to pay for their freedom with honey and furs. She asked for three pigeons and three sparrows from each house, since she said she did not want to burden the villagers any further after the siege. They were happy to comply with such a reasonable request. But then the chronicle states, quote, Olga gave to each soldier in her army a pigeon or a sparrow, and ordered them to attach by thread to each pigeon and sparrow a piece of sulphur, bound with small pieces of cloth. When night fell, Olga bade her soldiers release the pigeons and sparrows. So the birds flew to their nests, the pigeons to the coats, and the sparrows under the eaves. The dovecoats, the coops, the porches and the haymows were set on fire. There was not a house that was not consumed, and it was impossible to extinguish the flames, because all the houses caught on fire at once. The people fled from the city, and Olga ordered her soldiers to catch them. Thus she took the city and burned it, and captured the elders of the city. Some of the other captives she killed, while some she gave to others as slaves to her followers. The remnant she left to pay tribute. End quote. Afterwards, to avoid further such rebellions, Olga changed the system of tribute gathering, making it more well organised and less arbitrary. The fact that Olga appeared to face no opposition to ruling in her son's name indicates the resilience of the political structure of the Rus and their respect for the hereditary nature of succession. Equally important to note is that the centre of power lay by now among the Rus in the south, instead of settlements further north such as Novgorod or Smolensk. Olga is best remembered for her interest in improving relations with Byzantium. In 957 she went to Constantinople, but unlike each of her predecessors who sent armies to attack the imperial city, she went on a mission of peace. By converting to Christianity and adopting a new name, Helena, she not only improved relations with the Greeks, but also strengthened the earlier Christian presence in Kiev, which had been largely eliminated under Oleg and only slightly restored during the reign of Igor. Nonetheless, despite her personal conversion, neither the Varangian Rus elite nor her son seems to have accepted Christianity. Olga's reign came to an end in 962, when her 21-year-old son, Svetoslav, began to rule in his own right. The reign of Svetoslav marks somewhat a transition period. While he is sometimes described as the last Viking, he is the first Kievan prince recorded in the primary chronicle with a name of Slavic origin, as opposed to his predecessors, whose names derived from Old Norse. He is also the first Kievan ruler of whom we have a physical description. The Byzantine chronicler who met Svetoslav described him as a broad-soldiered man of medium height. He shaved his beard but had a bushy moustache, and his head was shaved except for one lock of hair untouched, a sign of noble origin among Turkic peoples. He dressed in simple white clothing and wore one golden earring, encrusted with a ruby and two pearls. Unlike his mother, who converted to Christianity, Svetoslav remained a pagan all of his life. 
According to the Primary Chronicle, he believed that his fellow warrior elite would lose respect for him and mock him if he became a Christian. Svetislav appears to have had also little patience for administration. His life instead was spent in permanent warfare against neighbouring states and his brief reign, 962 to 972, saw a number of successful military campaigns. In the first of these, he took control of the last East Slavic tribes, still vassals to the Khazars. After accomplishing that task, Svetislav moved against the Khazars themselves. The exact chronology of his Khazar campaign is uncertain and disputed, but sometime in the mid-960s, possibly 965, Svetislav set off to attack the Khazar capital, Itil, in the Volga Delta by the Caspian Sea. The Khazars had been in decline for a number of decades, but were still a major player in the steppes. They proved, however, completely unable to defend themselves against their determined foe. They were driven from their capital, which was utterly devastated. An Arab visitor to the Caspian a few years later heard that after the onslaught there remained not even a leaf on any branch. An archaeologist, when excavating a Khazar settlement by the Straits of Kirsch, observed evidence of destruction, datable to around the mid-10th century. Modern historians have debated Svetislav's aims in attacking the Khazars. According to historians Franklin and Shepard in their book, The Emergence of Rus, 750 to 1200, the motivation was to replace the Khazars as overlords of a large number of prosperous Slavic groups who would now pay the Rus tribute. Another benefit of destroying the Khazars was the opening up of routes along the Donets and Don Valleys, as well as possible routes across to the Caspian. It was a remarkable military achievement and transformed the Rus into the major military power in the region. However, the demise of the Khazars upset a centuries-old peace which had provided a measure of stability among the steppe peoples and had blocked nomadic invasions from the east. This would have serious repercussions later on, especially in the time of the Mongols. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Svetislav's last campaign was into the Balkans. This time the plan was not a raid, but rather a resettlement of his people to a new capital on the Danube River. In 968, the Byzantine emperor, Nikiforus Focus, bribed Svetislav to attack the Bulgarians, with whom the empire had been in conflict since the early 800s. What he did not foresee was that Svetislav would take a liking to the Danube region. 
the primary chronicle puts the following words into his mouth. Quote, it is not my pleasure to be in Kiev, but I will be in Periaslavets on the Danube. That shall be the centre of my land, for there all good things flow, gold from the Greeks, precious cloths, wines and fruits of many kinds, silver and horses from the Czechs and Hungarians, and from the Rus, furs, wax, honey and slaves. End quote. The Danube certainly offered potentially greater advantages than the Dnipro, especially since the defeat of the Hungarians by Otto I in 955 at the Battle of Lechfeld, described in an earlier podcast, opened up opportunities for trading with Central Europe. Svatoslav's forces met little resistance in Bulgaria as they devastated its towns. After going beyond what the Byzantines considered appropriate and outstaying their welcome, the Petronics attacked the city of Kiev, probably at the instigation of the emperor. Facing starvation, the inhabitants considered surrender, but according to the primary chronicle, they were saved by a boy who was able to break out of the siege by pretending to be a Petronik, and so find help from a group of nearby armed Rus. This small group duped the besiegers into believing that they were the vanguard of a much larger relief army, and so persuaded the Petronegs to come to an agreement. This lasted until Svetoslav arrived soon after and drove the enemy away completely. Nevertheless, the incident shows the vulnerability of the city of Kiev in this period, in times when their main army was off fighting elsewhere. The next year, Svetoslav returned to Bulgaria. This time he was intent on occupation, as demonstrated by the large number of women who accompanied the army. His first action was to attack the city of Philippopolis, modern-day Plovdiv in Bulgaria. Some 20,000 captives are said to have been impaled there, so as to terrify the population into submission. Svetoslav, however, saw the advantage in persuading leading Bulgarians to his cause. He allowed their defeated ruler, Boris, to remain in his own capital, Prislav, and to retain the trappings of imperial status, such as crowns and imperial robes. Together with not only a strong force of Bulgarians, but also a large number of Petronegs and Hungarian allies, Svetoslav was at the head of a massive army and had become a serious threat to Byzantine control of the region. Since the previous trip of the Rus to Bulgaria the year before, a new emperor had succeeded to the Byzantine throne, John Zemiskes. Zemiskes was an experienced commander and soon demonstrated his military skills against the invaders from the north. He personally led a cavalry force across the mountains to attack Prislav, the Bulgarian capital. The Rus garrison fought fiercely but were defeated and the Bulgarian royal family taken captive. Svetoslav retreated to a town today called Silistra, which lies on the lower Danube on the border between Bulgaria and Romania. Besieged by a considerable Byzantine army, the position for the Kievan army looked hopeless. Yet they bravely held out for more than two months, and Svetoslav was able to negotiate an honourable agreement with the emperor, and allowed to make his way home with his men and all their captives and loot. The fate of the two opposing leaders after the battle, however, could not have been greater. On his return to Constantinople, Zemiskis celebrated a triumph, divested the 
captive Bulgarian Emperor Boris II of the imperial symbols and proclaimed Bulgaria annexed. As a consequence, the weakened Bulgarian state was left vulnerable to the attacks of his successor, Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer, four decades later, as described in a previous podcast on the Battle of Clydon. Meanwhile, Svetoslav and his men set sail and landed at the mouth of the Dnieper, where they made camp for the winter. But devastated by famine and weakened Rus' army, laden down of all their loot, were vulnerable to attacks on the Pechenegs of the steppes. Just as the Emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitus had previously described some years before in his scholarly works, the most dangerous place for the Rus were the Dnieper Rapids, and it is here where the Pechenek struck, possibly encouraged by the Byzantines. Svatoslav and most of his men were killed, and his skull was said to be turned into a drinking cup, a traditional victory rite practised by the steppe peoples. In spite of Svetoslav's military achievements, and also the considerable power amassed by the Kievan elite over the vast forests north of their capital, they found themselves unable to establish full control of the steppelands, nor even safe passage across them. This made it impossible for them to secure the northern shores of the Black Sea and take full advantage of the opportunities, both economic and cultural, offered by the Mediterranean world. Defeating the Khazars was not enough to open the way to the sea, and the dream of a Rus empire that extended down from Kiev to the Danube died with Svetoslav. Svetoslav's death also risked the tearing apart of the still young Kievan state by internecine warfare between his three sons. Yet one of those sons would go on to not only unite the Rus, but build on the success of his father, and become the most renowned early Rus leader of all, Vladimir or Volodymyr the Great, who I will speak about in the next podcast. An idea for a future podcast episode is to record a conversation with a friend about some of the topics I've covered. Everything so far has been scripted, so this would be a chance to get a bit more in-depth about a particular area and a bit more informal. I'd love to hear any questions you might have, either about a specific battle or just generally any suggestions for the future. Well, this is your chance. You can contact me via Facebook or the blog www.historyeurope.net or email to the address carl at historyeurope.net. I've just recently started a Twitter account, which is at historyeurope.kb, kb the key battles, which I'm just getting the hang of, so it'd be great to hear from you that way as well. My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. I hope you can join me next week for the fifth and final part of Kherson 988, where I get on to Vladimir the Great and the siege itself. Until then, have a great week and goodbye.